Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. Episode 46, Purgatorio, Canto dodicesimo, the fourth day, midday. We are still in the first terrace with the prideful, such an important topic that it's been the theme of the previous two canti, and to be fair, indirectly of the other ones too. You might be wondering what Dante has left to say about it, but I'm sure he has plenty. We find him embracing the posture of his friend and leaving it behind as Virgil exhorts them to move on towards the second terrace. And we're told he was only keeping then the posture of his heart humble while he returns to walking normally. In a way, I'd argue that's when he truly becomes humble, although in the context of the poem he was only embracing the lower posture to manage a conversation with his friend. We should never attract too much attention to the things we do in prayer and penance, no matter how fun it is to join the Ashes hashtag on Instagram on Ash Wednesday. I guess it's a fine line balancing witness and boasting, as Dante himself shows us. After all, he is writing about his journey of purification, which could easily become boasting instead of the witness he was intended. But of course, the journey itself gives us reason to believe that the posture of Dante's heart in writing about it is the one of a humble person, because he underwent the purification to bring him there. If we were not able to write anything down for posterity because it would always be prideful, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. So clearly there is a way which is good news for us fellow writers. At least we have something to aspire to, even if I can say with certainty that I am nowhere near there. Case in point, enough about me. The final exploration of pride before we move to the second terrence are examples of the punishment of pride, and they are, in my opinion, the best defense of religious iconography ever. We see these images sculpted on the ground, like the effigies of people on a tomb, so that we may be reminded of them, and the pain of the loss can be a stimulus for those devout to remember them in prayer. The first image, of course, is the fall of Lucifer, who Dante says was created more noble of every creature, and for that very reason he felt the hardest, as we may remember from the last week or so. Similarly, we see Briareus once again, hit by one of Zeus' lightning. I've been expecting a lightning storm all week, but it never came, so by now I will associate it with this myth when it does. Then we see some of the Greek pantheons surrounding the defeated titans. Then back to Christian themes with Nembrod looking lost at the foot of the Babel Tower. The mythical Queen Niobe, with her lifeless children who had died as punishment for the Ubers, the biblical King Saul, who died of his own hand, to avoid capture by the Philistines at the Battle of Mount Gilboa, were rejected by God after he disobeyed him over and over in life. Then we have Arachne, the mythological woman transformed into a spider after she challenged Athena with her craft to save her tragic, uh, from the tragic death that she tried to bring upon herself when Athena destroyed her work. Then back to the Bible with Rehoboam, king of Israel until the rebellion of the ten tribes and then of Judah, until he became a vassal state of Egypt. Since he died in his kingdom and was buried with his ancestors, I presume the image is a reference to Egypt taking everything from him, but I'm not sure. We see Alcmeon from the Statius Stabate, although the person being punished was his mother, whose pride was in the necklace made by Vulcan for which price she betrayed her husband to an enemy. Then we see in back to the Bible, Sennacherib, the Syrian king who was killed by two of his sons, who wanted to get power for themselves. 
Then we're back to classical imagery with the Thracian singer Thamiris. He challenged the muses, and after they defeated him as punishment, they blinded him by slashing out his eyes. They also took away his ability to make poetry and to play the lyre. Then we're back to the Bible, with the Syrians retreating after Judith decapitated their general of fairness, and back to classical themes again with the destruction of Troy. The list ends here, and though we don't know if this is truly everything that God had depicted on that floor. And then he begins to praise the divine work that makes the dead look dead and the living look alive. To the point that those who witnessed the real events did not see them better than he looking at those representations of them. This, of course, is a convoluted way to praise God for being able to do what is impossible for humans. But it gives us an interesting question to think about. Why would God use the classical examples? It may seem bizarre to us, but it was not an unusual idea at the time. In the centuries before Dante, in particular with the early church still sharing a space with the pagan religions, many authors set out to preserve Greek myths and find Christian themes in them, in order to refute the paganism in them. St. Augustine is probably the best known of these writers to the general public, but he wasn't the only one. This is a similar sentiment to what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all of the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them the most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But, of course, being a Christian doesn't mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right, and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. Perhaps Dante is only appealing to his reader's culture or his own frame of reference, regardless of whether his readers could follow, but I suspect he was intentionally making a claim that God had supremacy over it all. Then he moves quickly on to another address to his readers, a sarcastic remark about carrying on with our heads high so that we do not see the reality of our sin. This remark eases us into the next phase of the poem, as Virgil tells Dante something which implies that, at least in his case, keeping his head high is not a bad thing. An angel approaches them, and he has been seen as both an angel of humility and an angel of mercy because of the fact he is the only one to walk towards Dante in the whole poem. Since we're talking about something Catholic, the question becomes, why not both? I mean, we are a both-hand religion after all. We have told it by now midday, and Virgil admonishes Dante to look reverential and not waste any time in getting help in moving forward, being conscious that the day will not come back. The angel is beautiful, dressed in white and radiant. He opens his arms in a welcoming gesture and he kindly tells them to go on, that the steps are close and easy to climb. Dante tells us few souls receive that invitation and again addresses us men, born to fly high, why do you fall down for any gusts of wind? Why indeed? The angel guides them, it's Dante on the forehead with his wing and then promises them a safe passage. Dante will describe the scenery as the hill of San Mignato in the city well-governed, which is Florence, although we know it was not well-governed after all, and it was being ironic. They climb up and hear voices singing, Blessed are the poor in spirit, with the usual to have sound that we come to expect. 
I cannot, however, recollect accepting Vitalis off the top of my head. He remarks it couldn't be any different from hell, but where the new circle welcomed them with pain lamentation. Dante tells us that the higher up he went on the holy stairs, the lighter he felt, which cannot be said of me going up the chapel above the Scala Santa in Rome. And I didn't even climb the actual stairs on my knees. I had to take the alternative route because my arthritis means I'm not able to step up on my knees. I'm not actually even sure if I can step forward on a straight surface without going on all four, to be honest. Dante asks Virgil why he feels that way, and he replies that it's the consequence of the pee being removed from his forehead, and when they will all have gone, he'll be so full of goodwill he'll be practically flying. Dante, who did not know since the pee had gone, will bring his fingers to his head in incredulity to only find six peas left, and they're actually weaker as well, because while pride it was a root of, of the other sins, so some of it has gone with the pride. The cleaning of peas will be the ritual aspect of the life in purgatory during Dante's journey, which of course is significant as we too have rituals as part of our spiritual life. The canto ends as Virgil smiles at him, which is the absolute sweetest. My feelings about Virgil are changing a fair bit now. Before we go, a brief note on the number as examples uh, as pointed out by the Columbia Project. The examples are 13. I somewhat missed the number coming up plenty of times before, but it is a number that was a guide for the Templars. On a basic level it is 1 and 3, the Trinity. Then it is the number of Jesus' inner circle, 12 apostles and himself. I'll leave some of the discussion to tomorrow's episode since this one seems to me pretty long already. They reflect the three types of pride that we have seen yesterday, and they are organised in four sets of terzine, which contain verses that begin with either the word vedea, the word o, or the word mostrava. If you are familiar with written Latin inscriptions, the initials spell out wom, that is man. I don't know if the English translators have rendered it in the English somehow, as it seems a bit tricky to me, but it's such a clever thing that I felt it was worth mentioning anyway. The same pattern applied to the final terzina about Troy, as of course citizen made of men. Back tomorrow with more of Dante's cleverness. Bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music which is fun for 10 or ads if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at alessia underscore chic or on my blog www.chicandcatholic.com.